Good evening, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you at that passage that Steve just read for us, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 42. Can I encourage you to have it open? And we'll read through it again, think about what it means and how it applies to us. Let's ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has won for us. Help us now as we look at your word to be thrilled again by his grace that we might serve him with humility and with joy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Not many people in our society know much about the Bible anymore. I've told you many times the story that uh, a man who used to be in our 9 o'clock service, Kel Richards, uh, he tells the story of how he overheard a conversation in a jeweller shop, I think in Chatswood, and uh, somebody was looking at the crosses in in the jeweller shop and uh, said to the lady, tell me about these crosses. And she said, well, there there are two kinds of crosses. There's there's, there's an empty one, or there's one with a little man on it, like this. Not many people in our society know much about the Bible anymore. But even here in Australia, most people have heard of the Good Samaritan. Haven't they? I mean, people know what a Good Samaritan is. They've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. And and, and most people think they know what the story of the Good Samaritan teaches. For example, the website Bite Size Morality says this. Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to explain that people should love everyone, including their enemies. What Jesus says, isn't it? Uh, Another website puts it this way. The parable of the Good Samaritan teaches us to help when someone needs help, even if they're of another race, even if they're your enemy, without expecting anything in return. Again, that's what the Good Samaritan does, isn't it? Helps his enemy without any expectation of anything in return. Uh, People think that the parable of the Good Samaritan is a lesson for us in how to love our neighbour. And so, the application is simple. It's what you might call the Nike application. The application is, just do it. Just do it. Get out there and love your neighbour. But the thing about reading the Bible like with reading any other literature, to understand the meaning of a text, you need to understand the context. And in this case, if we understand the context, I think it'll give give us a very different understanding of how to apply this passage to ourselves. Let's start with the wider context. As we've seen over these last few weeks, Jesus is on a journey, a final journey. Luke chapter 9, verse 51 was the turning point, remember? As the time came near for him to be taken up into heaven, he resolutely set his face towards, do you remember? Towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And why is he going to Jerusalem? He's told the disciples over and over again, they don't get it, but he's told them over and over again, he's going to Jerusalem to be rejected and to suffer and to die on the cross and then on the third day to rise again. And why is he going to do these things? Again, he's used all kinds of images to describe it. He's talked about saving his people. He's talked about presenting his people before God on Judgment Day, blameless. He's talked about about establishing his kingdom and defeating Satan and giving people a place in his kingdom. He's talked about enabling people to know God as their father. You remember that from the last week? No, nobody can know the father except through the son. He's talked about uh, uh, having... uh, the, the disciples, his disciples having their names written in heaven. So here's the wider context. There's the broader context. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die and rise again to win eternal life for his people. 
Okay, there's the broader context. Now let's look at the immediate context. Because this parable of the Good Samaritan, it doesn't appear in a vacuum. It's part of a conversation, part of a discussion that Jesus is having with an expert in the law, an expert in the Old Testament law of Moses. And the expert starts off with a question. He wants to know how Jesus thinks you can get eternal life. He wants to know what he has to do to get eternal life. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, have a look with me. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this bloke is an expert in the law. Uh, He thinks he already knows the answer to his question. He's not seeking information. As it says, dear, did you notice in verse 1, he's testing Jesus to see if Jesus knows the law. And so Jesus replies with a question of his own. He he says, well, how do you understand the law? Verse 26, "Uh, what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? Like most experts, uh, this guy is keen to show off his knowledge and to teach people the truth. And so he he, he quotes from two passages in the Old Testament, uh, two passages that together sum up the whole thrust of what God's law is on about, the whole, the whole thrust of what God wants from his people. He quotes first from Deuteronomy, the command to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And then he quotes from Leviticus, the command to love your neighbour as yourself. Verse 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your... This is the expert. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and... Love your neighbour as yourself. He's got it right. Jesus agrees with him. These two commands sum up the whole intention of God's law. These two commands sum up what God is looking for from his people. And so Jesus says, if you can just do these two things, you will have eternal life. Verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. There's the answer, and sounds like a straight Nike application, doesn't it? Just do it. Do this and you will live. Love God with everything you are and have. Love your neighbour just as much as you love yourself. Do that. Heaven is yours. You will inherit eternal life. But if you stop and think about it, it's a pretty big ask, isn't it? I mean, could you honestly say that you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength all the time? Could you honestly say that you love your neighbour just as much as you love yourself? Pretty big ask. And this expert, it says here that he wants to justify himself. Very, very important. He wants to justify himself himself. He wants wants to know that he's done God's law good enough to get himself to heaven. But these are pretty demanding commands. And so he asks Jesus another question. It's a very clever question. It's a question question which might make it a little bit more achievable. 
achievable to obey God's second command. He asks Jesus to define neighbour. Tell me, tell me who my neighbour is. Because, I mean, for example, if it's just the lady next door, well, that, that's, that's not too bad. That's, that's almost doable. If you try really hard, you could just about love the lady next door as much as you love yourself. So the question is, how, how broadly does God's command apply? Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus... And who is my neighbour? All right, there's the immediate context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're talking about how to inherit eternal life, how to get to heaven. And this expert in the law wants to know what he can do to get himself to heaven, how he can justify himself. He he wants to be able to get himself to heaven, and so he's trying to understand the limits, the the parameters of God's command, hopefully to to shrink it down to a bite-sized portion so so that he can actually do it. You get the immediate context? Okay, so wider context, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to win eternal life for his people. Immediate context, the expert wants to know what he can do to obtain eternal life for himself. With me? Okay. Okay. It's in reply to the expert's question that Jesus tells this story. A man, we assume it's a Jewish man, he he gets beaten up and robbed, left for dead at the side of the road. Then a couple of religious types pass him by, a a priest and a Levite, kind of religious authorities in, in Judaism. But then it's a Samaritan who stops and helps him. A Samaritan, by the way, an enemy of the Jews. Uh, The Jews and the Samaritans, about 100 years before this, had had a terrible war with each other. Uh, This this enemy is the one who stops. This enemy is the one who helps the injured man, his enemy, and, and, and he makes big sacrifices to do it. Verse 30. In reply, so notice the context, this is in reply. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, that's that's two days' wages, two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus now asks the expert in the law another question. Which one loved like a neighbour? Which one loved his neighbour here? And the answer, of course, the, the Samaritan. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus says, 
excellent. Go and do the same. You want to justify yourself? It's the Nike application. Just do it. Still in verse 37, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. All right, well, let's think about it. In context, what's the point that Jesus is making to the expert in the law here? This expert is trying to justify himself, who's trying to minimize God's law to make it obeyable, to, so that he can justify himself. Is Jesus actually saying to him, realistically, go and do it and you'll earn eternal life for yourself? Now, the whole point of Jesus' parable here, the whole point of the parable of the Good Samaritan is this. What Jesus is doing, he's maximizing God's law. He's giving it the broadest possible application. It's a bit like what he does in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you think you haven't murdered? Even if you've been angry, you've murdered in your heart. He's giving it maximum application. Who, who is your neighbor? It's not just the lady next door. And it's not just your family. And it's not just the people who are your friends. And, and it's not just the people who are from your country. It, it, it's even your enemy. Anyone who needs you, you should love with a sacrificial love as much as you love yourself. If you want to obey the command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you know what, friends? I am 100% sure of this. This expert in the law won't be able to just do it. He's not going to be good enough. If this is what God's law means... He's not going to be able to justify himself. If this is what it means to love your neighbour as yourself, let alone to love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, this expert in the law will not inherit eternal life. And neither will I, and neither will you. There's no way the expert can just do it with God's law there's no way he can justify himself. Do you know what this expert needs? What this expert needs is... Well, he needs someone who will go to Jerusalem and die for his sins. He needs someone who will go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and rise again to offer him eternal life as a free gift. That's the one thing needed. That's the one thing this man needs. That is the only possible way he could inherit eternal life is if Jesus goes to the cross. Okay. There's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Brings us to a second story. Our second story is the story of uh, Mary and Martha. Again, it's a pretty familiar story, I think, isn't it? Maybe... People outside the church don't know this one so well, but most church people know the story of, of Mary and Martha, don't they? Um, and again, most people think they know what it means. They think it's about priorities. Now, of course, you, you need to serve Jesus like Martha. There's no preacher who's going to say, don't serve Jesus like Martha, otherwise nobody's going to do the work at church. Uh, of course, we need to serve Jesus like Martha, every preacher will tell you. But as a first priority, like Mary, you need to listen to Jesus. And so, people say, it's important to read your Bible and go to church and pray. One website puts it very well. The point of this passage is about making Jesus and his word our first priority. Today, 
we come to know Jesus better through prayer, church attendance, and Bible study. Once again, it's the Nike application. Just do it. Read your Bible, go to church, pray, listen like Mary, and then serve like Martha. But again, I think the context here is very important. And I think it points us in a different direction. Gives us a different emphasis. Let's have a look at the story. First thing to notice in verse 38 is that Jesus and the disciples were going somewhere. Can you you see that in verse 38? They're on their way. Where Where are they on their way to? On their way to Jerusalem for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again. There's the context. We're reminded of the context again. Don't forget the context. It's like Luke is saying here. Uh, On the way, on the way, uh, Jesus goes to the home of a friend of his called Martha. Now, Martha is chasing around trying to be a good hostess, serving Jesus and his friends. And you you can understand that. Jesus is rocked up to her house with a whole, you know, 12 disciples all in tow. That's a big job. I don't know if you ever catered for 13 people. It's pretty difficult to do. You can imagine she's chasing around the place, making sure, you know, Jesus has got all his hummus or something and, and, you know... checking that none of the disciples are gluten intolerant or something like that. You know, she, she, you can imagine she's stressed out of her brain trying to serve all of these people there at home. And meanwhile, her sister, Mary, is just bludging. Sitting there, doing nothing. I mean, she's emptying the dishwasher and stacking the dishwasher and, and, and Mary's just bludging, okay? listening to Jesus teach. Martha's feeling stressed and it makes her makes her grumpy. She's grumpy with Jesus. Why would you enable this bludging? And she's grumpy with her lazy sister. Verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, did you notice that? He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus answers Martha and he says, he says something very interesting and very, very important. He says, there's only one thing needed. You only need one thing. And so he says, Mary has made a better choice and has chosen something that will never be taken away from her. Verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Okay, as I say, I reckon the context is very important for us as we try to understand the point of this story. So here are some questions to ask in the context, okay? What's the one thing that's needed? And why does it mean that Mary has made the better choice and chosen something that won't be taken away from her? What's the one thing that's needed in context? And why does it mean that Mary has made a choice to get something that will never be taken away from her? I'm going to give you one minute. Turn to each other. And have a think about those two questions in context. What's the one thing needed? 
And why does it mean Mary's made the better choice? And uh, it's not going to be taken away from her. Do you understand the question? Give you about a minute or so. Turn to people, make sure there's nobody sitting by themselves. If there's someone sitting by themselves, make sure you talk to them. Okay, about a minute to discuss. What's the one thing needed? Okay, let's come back together. Let's come back together. So remember the context. Remember the context. We're on the way. We're on the way. Okay, remember the immediate context. We've just heard this story about Jesus expanding the law so that there's no way you can inherit eternal life by yourself. So what's the one thing needed? In the context of Luke's gospel, in the context of the previous story, the one thing needed is for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. The one thing needed is for Jesus to die on the cross and rise again from the dead. That is the one necessary thing for people who can't justify themselves. That is the one necessary thing for people like us to inherit eternal life. That is the one necessary thing for you to get your name written in heaven. That's the one thing needed. Jesus going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. So why does that mean Mary has made the better choice? A choice of, uh, that will not be taken away from her? Why better to sit at Jesus' feet rather than rush around worried, worriedly and grumpily serving Jesus? Well, if the one thing necessary is for Jesus to go to the cross and die and rise again for us, then the one thing that we need to do is this. The one thing we need to do is bludge off Jesus. You hear what I mean? Nothing... We can do to earn eternal life. Can't earn it by our service. Can't earn it by our prayer or Bible reading or going to church. Can't earn it by anything we can do. We can only receive salvation as a free gift from Jesus who won it by his life, death and resurrection. The only way to get that which will never be taken away from you is to bludge it off Jesus. If we're saved by what we do, if we can justify ourselves, then Martha's got it right. She's working hard. And she's got every reason to be stressed. Because how do you know if you've done enough? I mean, what if you serve peanuts and one of the disciples has an allergic reaction or something like that? You know, she's got every reason to be stressed. If you're saved by, by, by serving, then of course she's got every reason to be resentful. She's working and her sister's bludging. But if you're saved by Jesus, there's no room for stress. Because he's done it all. And there's no room for proud grumpiness. You just humbly receive the grace of Jesus. All right. You can see what's here in this passage. Two very familiar stories, aren't they? Our first story, story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is asked how to inherit eternal life. He agrees it's by loving God and loving your neighbour. But the expert in the law wants to do it himself, justify himself. And so he wants to shrink the parameters, define neighbour in a way that's achievable. But Jesus won't let him do it. He, he defines neighbour as widely as possible. Second story, Martha and Mary. Martha's serving. Mary is bludging. Martha gets grumpy. But Jesus says there's only one thing needed. Better to sit and bludge from him than worriedly and grumpily serve him. Okay, we've read the stories. We've tried to see them in their context. Now let's think about applying them to, themselves, to, applying them to ourselves. You know, I think... Uh, having seen the stories in their context, that there are some serious problems with the Nike application. Don't you reckon? In fact, I reckon there are three very significant problems that these parables show us. 
three very significant problems. The whole point of the stories is to show us these problems with the Nike application. The whole point of why Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he's trying to show the expert in the law that he can't just do it. If you understand God's law rightly, you'll realise that you could never love God with your whole heart, soul, mind and strength. You could never love your neighbour as yourself. But there's the first big problem with the just do it application. We cannot just do it. Friend, if you, if you are hoping that somehow you will be good enough to get to heaven, if you are hoping that somehow you'll, you'll be able to do enough things to be able to get yourself eternal life, I'm sorry to tell you that you are in for a very, very big shock because you're not good enough. You can't just do it. There's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. But more than that, if we think we have to just do it, then we'll do the same thing as the expert. We'll try to minimise God's requirements, we'll try to shrink them down into something we can do, something achievable, and we'll actually miss the whole point of God's law. Do you ever find yourself doing that? You see a command in God's word, something about you know, giving lots of money or something like that, and you go, I wonder how much it actually is. Is it 10%? Is it... Do you ever find yourself looking for loopholes? Yeah, well, I imagine that that applied back then in that context, but really it couldn't be saying that to me. How could I do that? Have you ever found yourself obeying the letter of God's commands but losing the spirit of them? You know, that's the Aussie way. You ask the average Aussie, will you go to heaven? And they will say, I hope so. And if you say to them, well, what about your sin? They will say oh, I haven't done any big sins. I mean, I haven't murdered anyone recently. I haven't, uh, I haven't robbed any banks. Uh, I love my family. You know, let, let's define neighbour narrowly enough to, so that it's just, you know, I love my family, I look after them. I hope I'll be okay. Friends, it's not the intention of God's commands. They're not about ticking a box. They're not about us justifying ourselves. They're not about us making them small enough to do. No, no, what they are, they should be a vision of the life that God wants for his saved people. To love God and love your neighbour. They should be a vision of what we will be like when we are transformed in the new heaven and new earth. I'll tell you what, there we won't be trying to shrink it down. There we will be delighting in loving God, delighting in loving our neighbour. That's what God's commands are on about, to give this vision of the life of love for his saved people. And so we've got to be careful not to be minimisers of God's commands We want to maximise them to find new ways to love the God who has graciously saved us through the one thing needed, through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. The just do it application of the Good Samaritan, it's deeply problematic. We can't just do it. And if we try to minimise God's law so that we can, we actually lose the point of God's law completely. Same with the story of Martha and, and, and Mary. Shows us another big problem with the Nike application. Another big problem with the Just Do It application is that we will end up stressed and burdened like Martha. We'll feel burdened and anxious because how can you ever know if you've done enough? 
How can you ever know if you've served Jesus enough? How can you ever know if you've listened to Jesus enough? How can you ever know if your priorities are good enough? Do do you ever ever feel like that? I think it's very common for the children of tiger parents. We've always been told we've got to jump the bar. If we think God is like that, we've got to jump the bar. It's stressful. Do you ever feel stressed, burdened, guilty, worried if you've done enough, worried if you've given enough, worried if you've served enough? And more than that, I think we'll end up resentful. We'll resent serving and we'll resent the, the people who don't suffer like we do. Have you ever had this experience? You drag yourself out from the, into the freezing cold from your nice warm house. You drag yourself out of the freezing cold and get in the car and drive to Bible study and it's cold and it's wet and it's miserable and you sit down in Bible study and then you hear all the pathetic excuses of those people who couldn't, couldn't be bothered turning up that night. Have you ever felt that sense of resentment? Like, I'm having to suffer. Why aren't they suffering with me? (laughs) Jesus' point is this. There's only one thing needed, and it's not that we serve him like Martha, and it's not even that we sit at his feet and listen to him like Mary. The one thing necessary is that he went to Jerusalem to die and rise again to save us. He saves us by his grace. And so there's no need to be burdened. You can know for sure that you are saved. If you never do another thing for Jesus, in one sense, doesn't matter. He saves you. You don't save yourself. You don't have to worry about whether you've done enough. Jesus has done it all. And there's no room for being resentful. If you're serving more than someone else, excellent. That is a privilege for you. And it doesn't make you any better than they are. You're still saved by Jesus just like they're saved by Jesus. Friends, can you see from these two parables real dangers with the just-do-it approach? It's because Christianity is not a just-do-it religion. Christianity is a Jesus-did-it religion. If you think about it, I'll just chuck this out there for anybody who wants to be, have their mind go... I'm quoting from Martin Luther here, actually. If you think about it, uh, Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He's the one who loved his enemies at great sacrifice to himself. Uh, We're not the good Samaritan in the story. We're the half-dead man who can't do anything. Jesus is the good Samaritan, and he's the one in the story of Mary and Martha who's done the one thing needed. Christianity is a Jesus-did-it religion, and so what we need to do is gratefully bludge off Jesus. Don't minimise the law. Don't stress. Don't resent. Just happily, joyfully bludge off Jesus. My friends, you know what? This is the last thing I'm going to say. I don't feel worried about preaching this. I, I don't feel worried about telling you... Like, I don't suddenly think, oh, okay, they're just going to blood you off Jesus and no one's going to serve anymore and I'm going to have to do it all by myself and it's, nothing's going to get done. No, no, because I don't think this will stop us from serving Jesus if we get his grace. I don't think it'll make us lazy. In fact, I think it'll inspire us to serve If you're a good Bible flicker, see if you can flick with me to John chapter 12 and verse 3. Or if you've got a a, a telephone Bible, you can probably give Jesus a call in John chapter 12 and verse 3. (laughs) John chapter 12 and verse 3. It's just a little while later that Jesus again comes to Martha's place. And just just have a look at how Mary responds to Jesus here. This is John chapter 12 and verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. A pint is, uh, is it 600 millilitres, 600 mils, around about. 
how many? 560 mils of, uh, of, of nard here. That is it's around about $100,000 worth of perfume. Okay, this, I remember buying Carmelina once, her favourite perfume, cost me $100 a bottle, and um, it's ages ago, we were living in Newtown, we were coming to church here, and as Carmelina walked out the front door the first day, she dropped it on the balcony, smashed it. Okay, we had a beautiful smelling balcony for a day, and I had, uh, I had a wife crying for about a day, okay, over this $100 perfume. Uh, here is $100,000 worth of perfume. Okay, um, took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. What do you reckon Mary was thinking as she did this? Do, do, do you think she was all stressed about it? I've only got 560 millilitres of perfume here. What if I need 561 milliliters to really please Jesus? Is this going to be... It, it's nard. Should I have gone with myrrh instead? This is really stressing me out here. Have I, is this good enough? Or, or do you think she's feeling really resentful? Why am I the only one pouring perfume here? What, what's wrong? Why is it only my hair that's smelly here now, you know, wiping Jesus' feet with my... What's going on with all of their hair? I don't think it's what's going on at all, do you? What's she thinking? She's just, she's just loving Jesus, isn't she? Loving the man who so graciously saved her. She's not stressed or burdened or resentful. She's not trying to minimise anything. She's just loving the man who has graciously saved her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his magnificent love for us. We thank you that he's done the one thing needed and died and risen again for us. So, Heavenly Father, help us to just give up the idea of justifying ourselves. Help us instead to maximise your law, to look for new ways to serve and love you as our gracious saviour. Help us not to be stressed or, or burdened or resentful in our service, but to serve you as a joyful privilege, knowing your magnificent love for us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.